Gone, a podcast about people who have gone missing from the upper Midwest of the United States and Ontario. These people didn't just disappear. Someone, somewhere, knows something. This is Janelle Feller. And I'm Katie Nordby. These are the stories of Paige Marie Renkowski and Robin Ann Petinato. In 1990, Paige was a 30-year-old substitute teacher from DeWitt Township, Michigan, near Okemos. She was close to her mother and engaged to be married that November. In May 1990, she drove her mother to the Detroit Metro Airport around 11.30. On her way home, she stopped to visit one of her friends near Canton, where they visited a park. After dropping the friend off, she headed home. Around 2.30 or 2.45, she stopped at a now-closed party store located at Ford Road, west of Interstate 275 in Canton, where she bought a beer. One beer? I guess in the 90s you could just buy a beer. I don't I, know. And I was, when you said party store, I was thinking hats and... That's what I thought, too. And plates and matching stuff, but yeah. it's a good name for a, a liquor store. Well, in some places called it a party store, and other places called it like a convenience store. So oh, I'm not okay. sure what... The store clerk remembered Paige because she was wearing multicolored, loose-fitting flowered pants and a distinctive necklace, which the clerk asked her about. After leaving the store, Paige made the hour drive home to Lansing, where she lived with her fiancé. Paige was last seen on the side of Interstate 96 near the Fowlerville exit, which would have been about 20 minutes from her home. She was seen by a passing motorist talking with two unidentified black males. They were standing next to a maroon or burgundy van that was parked behind Paige's vehicle. There may have been a third man in or near the van. Paige was seen gesturing, throwing her hands in the air, and one of the men had his hand on her shoulder. A motorist who saw Paige on the shoulder around 3.30 became concerned when he passed the vehicle again at the same location hours later. The authorities recalled about her abandoned vehicle. When they went to check it out, the car was still idling, so the officer turned it off, locked it up, and tagged it as abandoned. It was initially thought that the car broke down and that the driver walked to Fowlerville, which was a quarter mile where the car was, to get help. The responding officer found information in the purse, called the number, and left a message about her car. They also ran the tags and found out it was registered to Paige's mother, Artis. So they called her and left a message also. But she had just flown to Georgia to visit her other daughter, Michelle. The voicemail sat unheard for days. Officers didn't realize that Paige was missing at that point. It had only been a few hours. Mike Freyer, a member of the Livingston County Sheriff's Department cold case team, said the spot where investigators found her 1986 silver Oldsmobile Cutlass was not processed as a crime scene because at the time it was just considered to be an abandoned vehicle. She left her purse she left her purse in the bag in the car and it was running. Right. That's unusual. It gets more unusual. And why would it not have been you wouldn't have done that. You I just mean, wouldn't have done that. And in fact a, a car if it's running to me is not a is is not broken down. Right. I guess maybe I drove a lot of old vehicles, but if it's running, we're good. Right. 
Yeah, her purse her purse being left there is not the only unusual thing that they find. Okay. So her fiance called her mother around 9 p.m. that night to say that Paige wasn't home. She was supposed to be home around 3 that day, and he hadn't heard from her. Her mother, Artis, said she knew right then that something was terribly wrong. Paige was not someone to be late for something or to not let someone know if she was going to be late. When they hadn't heard from Paige in a couple days, they called her fiancé and had him go check the voicemails to see if she had been in contact with them. That's when they found out about her car and reported her missing. When they realized that Paige was, in fact, missing, a witness returned to the scene to help investigators identify the general location of where her vehicle was, which was a company-owned car belonging to her mother. Investigators then located her towed car, which had Paige's shoes lying on the floor near the driver's seat. Her purse with her wallet and money were also in the car, including her personal items and papers. Also, the beer she bought before heading home. Now, I don't think it's entirely strange that she was driving without her shoes on. It was May, so it was probably warm out. But what I do think is strange is that if her car actually broke down on the side of the road or she stopped to help someone, wouldn't you put your shoes back on? I can imagine that the shoulder was probably gravel. It wouldn't have been nice to walk on without shoes. It seems as though she may have been in a hurry or was distraught, maybe, to leave her shoes in the car when she got out. Police found several fingerprints and palm prints on the car. The sheriff's office said they actually had a good set of palm prints, almost as if someone was leaning on her car. The fingerprints haven't turned up a match for anyone in law enforcement databases, and some places don't even take palm prints when a person is arrested. Authorities aren't sure why Paige was speaking to those individuals, and they don't even know if they're connected to her disappearance. She had recently deposited a large sum of money into her bank account at the time that she vanished, but it was left untouched. Family members reported that Paige may have been having problems with her fiancé in May 1990, but it's not likely that she chose to leave her life for that reason. If that were the case, wouldn't you take your purse and wallet and also your shoes? In June, the 34th day she had been missing, her parents and fiancé had the first of 25 billboard ads put up featuring a 10-foot-tall picture of Paige. Her fiancé said, We're determined not to stop until we find out what happened. We're trying every way we can think of to find out what happened. Those billboards also mentioned a $25,000 reward with the hopes that it would lead to information about where Paige was. Investigators on the cold case team have a few theories as to what may have happened to Paige. Was it someone she knew? Was it staged? Or was it someone pretending to be an officer to get her to stop? Because remember, the maroon or burgundy van was parked behind Paige's vehicle on the side of the interstate. But then, that leads to another question. Why was she stopped there in the first place? On a busy interstate when the Fowlerville exit was so close, she could have gotten help there if she needed it. I couldn't find anything to suggest that her car was actually broken down. We know that it was still idling when officers found it abandoned, but did it still drive? If it had broken down, did someone pick her up to bring her to Fowlerville to get help? This was the 90s, and people didn't have cell phones. So if your car broke down and you needed help, you either walked to the nearest phone or you got a ride to one. Investigator Freyer said the odds are long that she'd be driving along I-96 at 70 miles an hour and see someone that she knew who had evil intentions. That just doesn't seem so. It's also a long shot that someone followed her from Okemos to the airport to her girlfriend's house and back to Lansing. 
He also said the staged accident has some validity, but the physical evidence does not support that theory. She could have stopped if another motorist flashed a badge or gave her any indication that he was an officer. Something interesting that I found was that in the 80s, there were three unsolved abductions and murders of young women in the general area of where Paige disappeared. So was there someone out there on I-96 just waiting for an opportunity? In August 1990, there was an article that speculated that a body that was found floating 500 feet off the Kiwani Harbor in Wisconsin was Paige. This turned out to be untrue. In 2001, an unidentified inmate in a Michigan prison was named a suspect. The man was in prison for carjacking, and his victim was a young woman, and the crime occurred only weeks after Paige disappeared. He was interviewed several times and was believed to be one of the men Paige spoke to on the side of the road that day, but when he was subjected to a polygraph test, he passed, and investigators eliminated him from their list. Then, there isn't much until 2011. In May of that year, investigators used ground-penetrating radar to search a pond off Nicholson Road near Grand River in Handy Township. Nicholson Road is about five miles away from the Fowlerville exit. The pond is a site where a, a local woman told police she and a friend saw a pair of cement-covered boots while they were playing there around the time Paige disappeared. A search of the pond found bones, but they turned out to be animal, and the dive team found nothing of significance. In November 2011, investigators were led to a spot in Conway County, about five miles away from the Fowlerville exit. They were led to this spot after reviewing the 1999 case file, which included a letter and hand-drawn map sent to them six months after she vanished by an, an anonymous tipster, including where Paige's remains were buried. They had previously searched this spot with ground-penetrating radar, but this time they dug four holes where cadaver dogs indicated possible human remains. Again, this was also unsuccessful in finding anything. Over 80% of the tips police have received indicated the man near Paige's car was black. Some have said he was Hispanic as well. Sketches of six possible suspects in her disappearance will be posted on our website. These people have never been identified. None of the 1,200 tips over the years have led to a suspect. Foul play is suspected in her case, and it has been ruled a homicide. After Paige's disappearance, her mother, Artis, became known as an advocate for other victims' families and a liaison to law enforcement. Artis passed away in 2017 at the age of 84. Artis's final wish was to know what happened to her daughter. Paige's sister, Michelle, says her mother now knows what happened and is reunited with Paige. Paige Rinkowski would be 60 years old today. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'6", 125 pounds. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a long surgical scar on the inside of her right arm, a surgical scar on her right leg from a knee replacement, and two surgical screws in her left knee. She was last seen wearing a white silk shirt, multicolored loose-fitting pants, and a long beaded necklace. If you have any information about Paige Rankowski's disappearance, please call Crime Stoppers of Michigan at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. That's 1-800-773-2587. A $2,500 reward is being offered for any information that leads to finding Paige. Okay, so who was it that had the polygraph test? So it was some inmate in a Michigan prison. He was in there for carjacking uh, just a couple weeks after Paige went missing. So 
I've I've heard that polygraph tests actually aren't an indicator, aren't a good indicator if you're telling the truth or not. Um, if, for example, if you're a narcissist, you have no trouble lying, and they can pass the polygraph test. Right, and I, you know, after that happened, there wasn't anything else about this person. So you wouldn't think that they would just go off of one polygraph test and then take him off their list. It sounds like he was the one who maybe said something about it. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why they thought that he was a suspect other than um, he was in prison for carjacking uh, just a couple weeks after she went missing. And they they weren't able to determine who the people were standing that in the in the maroon van, right? They didn't know who any of them were. Nope. Or um, or a, a license plate or anything. Right, and that's what it's so mysterious about this case is that her car was not broken down. I can I can kind of put myself in that situation to where if you know if my car is broken down and I don't have a cell phone, it's 1990. Somebody offers you a ride to go get help, you'd probably take it. You know, to the Fowlerville exit, which is a quarter of a mile away. But you would have put your shoes on. You would have put your shoes on. And you on. would have grabbed your, your purse. Right. And and the car wasn't broken down. Yeah. I mean so, I don't consider I don't consider a running car broken down. Um it didn't obviously have any flat tires or things that right. they could really that they could really note. And um it had been running for hours. Yeah. Hours and hours. And um I guess maybe it's it's um yeah, it talks about some of the vehicles I've driven, but if it's if it's running, then it's running. It's I would have made it. I would have made it to that quarter mile. Right. Uh, no matter what, even if I was rolling in, because I, I would be in a bad position. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be stopped on the side of an interstate. Right. Yeah, and I think that the scenario of you know maybe somebody flashing a badge at her or some somehow indicating that they were maybe an officer you know, it might be the best scenario. She knew the importance of abiding by the law. And um, if somebody would have flashed a badge at her or given her an indication that they were an officer, she would have pulled over. Not that I think that that's what happened, but her car wasn't broken down. So it's not that she was pulled over to the side of the road in the first place. And nobody stole her purse. And nobody stole took anything from her. I just think that that scenario would probably be the best bet as to why why was she there in the first place? Who knows? Yeah, it doesn't... It, it just leaves questions and no answers. And, uh... And it, it... She's just gone. And there would have been so many people that would have been... It was in the daytime. It was in the afternoon. There would have been people driving by. I mean, you may not notice a lot about a car on the side of the road, but you'd notice. Right. Well, and the one person noticed it twice. Yeah. At least twice in the same spot. And then he was the one who called uh, the police. Called the police about it. It just doesn't. um... And the, you know, the $25,000 reward. That would cause you to rack your brain a little bit about did I see anything? Is there anything that I witnessed? Or one of those three people that were standing there turning the other two in. Right. Um, and why was she, 
Why was she waving her arms about as if she was angry or if she was upset? Right. And um, from what you read, did you find out if there was any damage done to the car? Did somebody hit her from behind and make her pull over? And was she upset about that? Not that they could see when okay. they found the car. There wasn't any visible damage that would have caused her to pull over on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just... I, it would take a lot for me to pull over to the side of the road. And I, it's, it's, that's today. This was 1990. Yeah. Um, maybe a, a completely different time. And, and, um, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just a, more suspicious now. Uh, and, um, but it, uh, it's, it's just strange that there's, that nobody saw really anything, um, of note. Right. And her, her money was still there. Her purse was still there. Why? I mean, if somebody, if somebody did take her. Should have at least taken her wallet. Right. It just seems so strange that, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's sad. And, um, did she, did she have any kids? No, she did not. Just a mom that was continued to look for her and search for her and not find her. Until the day she died. Yeah, that's very sad. Thank you, Katie. This is the story of Robin Ann Petonato. Whitefish is located in the northern northwest corner of Montana near Kalispell. The Great Northern Railway has the historic Whitefish Depot, which is a stop on the Amtrak Empire Builder Line. Um, there's a large ski resort nearby on Big Mountain. Whitefish is a tiny little town of 6,500. U.S. Route 93 and Montana 40 run through the middle of Whitefish. On July 1975, 14-year-old Robin Ann Petonato was walking on 2nd Street toward the softball fields. Robin lived nearby. She was barefoot and didn't have her purse. She was never heard from again. Robin was born November 11, 1960. She is Caucasian with light brown hair. Uh, she was about 5 foot and 100 pounds when she went missing. She was wearing a tan halter top, cut off denim jeans, and no shoes when she went missing. Authorities and her family do not believe that Robin ran away. She was the youngest of five children and wasn't having problems at home. Robin had a boyfriend who was questioned by authorities and passed a polygraph test. He isn't considered a suspect in her case. Do they know why why she was walking to the softball fields? She, she lived really close by. She went to watch a game. Oh, okay. And I'm not sure if she was going to the game or coming back from the game, and she was headed to a house that was just two doors down from her house. So she was... It, it was in her neighborhood. Barefoot. Barefoot. It's 19, 1975. Sure. I think that was much more common then. Uh, the ground was softer. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, so Robin had kept a diary, and she mentioned a boy who had recently moved away. Uh, but that was a dead end. Years after her disappearance, a local teacher swore that she had talked to Robin in a bar in Alaska, and they searched and searched, but they found nothing. On September 5th, 1975, the Daily Interlake stated that police are assuming that she ran away until further information might prove otherwise. Whitefish Police and Flathead County Sheriff's Office consider this an open case and still follow up on leads when they come in. 
Retired Sergeant Pat Walsh with the Flathead County Sheriff's Office worked on Robin's case. He sees commonalities between her disappearance and the disappearance of Nancy Kirkpatrick in April of 1976. Nancy Lynn Kirkpatrick was 16 years old in April 1976. She lived in Columbus Falls, population 5,000. It's located about 10 miles from Whitefish. She had spent the day babysitting for a family in the neighborhood. She was last seen walking home and was never seen or heard from again. Nancy was born January 25, 1960. She is Caucasian with brown hair and brown eyes. She's five foot one or five foot two and weighed between 90 and 96 pounds. She has burn scars on her right shoulder and a scar on her right arm between her shoulder and her elbow. Nancy lived with her grandmother. She was described as a normal teenager, whatever that is. I'm not sure right. what that is. And a good student. She was interested in the hippie counterculture. The article goes on to say that she was a chronic runaway. I don't know about you, but that isn't a normal teenager being a chronic runaway. Right. That seems like there, there must have been something going on for her to be a chronic runaway. Yeah, and that's that's what they listed it as, a chronic runaway. Um, she had run as far as Seattle, Washington, and Los Angeles, California, before the police found her and brought her home. The day that Nancy disappeared, she had, been she had just returned from running away and had spent the day in lockup in Kalispell before being released to the care of her grandmother. The article also reports that a local teacher thought he saw her in an Anchorage, Alaska bar in May 1983, but the sighting was never confirmed. And the same thing was said about Robin Pet Petinato, and I'm not sure. Was it the same teacher? <laughs> I, hope, I don't think so, but it, it, it it's as if uh, as if it got something something got cross referenced, and um, or maybe they looked alike. I they they actually they they were of similar height and similar sure. weight and similar. They were the same age. They were just months apart right. in age. So and, they maybe just confused both. But I think that happened to one and it's now been, Oh, sure. just seems as if it was both of them. Sure. They're not, they're not able to determine which is which, but Nancy would have been 59 years old today. Her case remains unsolved. If you have any information about Robin Petonato or Nancy Kirkpatrick, contact the Flathead County Sheriff's Office at 406 758 5585. Okay, so these girls were just months apart in age. They both had, um, they listed as brown hair, and it went from light brown hair uh, with Robin to dark brown hair with Nancy. And, but they were, they were the same age, about the same weight, very close locations. They're right. 10 miles apart. And in this little area, um, there's there's highways going through and and these two towns kind of sit in the middle of it, but on the on the highway, sure. um, on the highway, um, so the highway and Amtrak the Amtrak railway went through their towns. Um, who's who is driving through those areas, and would have done so on such a regular basis that they wouldn't have been noticed? Right. I mean that they were just so regular that this is just what they do. Um, their presence in your community didn't cause you to question anything. Uh, the girls would have known, would not have probably been surprised. They mm -hmm. weren't running or screaming. Um, and these were neighborhoods that they were taken from. Yeah. But who is so common that they're invisible? Right. Uh, you know? 
Well, is it somebody that you know? Is it somebody that is known in town? Is it somebody that they knew? Right. I mean, you you read stories of serial killers who were right under our noses the entire time. They were family men. They were businessmen. They were well-to-do people. And years later, you hear that, you know, serial killers. And you just think, how? Who raised a family. Who raised, who, yeah, children. Right, right. How did we not see this? How did we miss the signs? Were they that good at covering up their tracks? Or they were just so ordinary yeah. that they became invisible. Right. Um, you know, you think about... All of this makes me more paranoid just in my everyday life and more suspicious of everybody. And I didn't see anything else that told me that that there were um, girls that had gone missing from this area. But I want to look and see along some of these highways, are there girls that have gone missing, you know, in this time frame? We're now, you know, we see today we can, they have found serial killers who whose career ran 30 years. Right. Across the entire country. Across the entire country. Because they were truck drivers or over the road something. Right. They did Salesmen yeah. or that they they did not, um, or they, they their victims were those invisible people right. who society has forgotten yeah. or... or yeah. That nobody's missing, you yeah. know, like the idea of of a runaway or a, or a, or a prostitute that nobody would be notice if they went missing. Yeah. Um, but these were taken from their hometowns, um, and they were missed. Um, I think that <clears throat> I just it causes me to. This is the first case in which it, it kind of just it causes me to say. This is somebody that they knew. Oh, absolutely. That's what it seems like. They knew a regular right. a regular person yep. that was um, constantly in their communities. Um, it didn't cause them to scream. It didn't cause them to raise a, a ruckus. And nobody, nobody noticed them. Right. Because they were so regular. Yeah. Which is, yeah... It is terrifying. Yeah, it is. It is. And this was 1975. Right. Um, much more innocent time. Yeah. Well, and and probably a time where it wouldn't have been uncommon to just get a ride by somebody. Get a ride. Right. Even if it was somebody who sort of, you know, maybe didn't know them, but... In a oh, town yeah, of 6,500 yeah. or 5,000, you would have known everybody. Right. It wouldn't have been uncommon to, oh, yeah, can you give me a ride to the store or can you drop me off somewhere? And it sounds like uh, uh, Nancy would have been more likely to do that than Robin. Nancy was, she was the chronic runaway. Um, and so she was, in that sense, she was braver, sure. um, took more risks. And it doesn't appear as if Robin did that. Um, she was just, she wasn't, um, it wasn't in her, it wasn't in her character to do that. Right, right. And, but 1975 in a small town, you, you sure could have, you would have known everybody. And, um, and that's why that they, that they were able to be taken from their hometown, such a small town and just disappear like that. 
That's why it's, that's why it sounds, it feels like that it would be somebody that everybody knew. Yeah. Somebody kind of hiding in plain sight. Hiding in plain sight. And a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. That, that you just raising a family, holding down a job, and stealing young girls from their hometown. It's, and, and I think I, that those kinds of stories are the most terrifying. When the town is 5,000 right. people, 6,000 people, and, yeah. and somebody can be, can be just taken from the, from their, from their sidewalks. Right. Uh, in a, in a regular, ordinary town on an ordinary day. Yeah. And, um, and even the times that they were taken were close. Um, one was in July and one was in April and it just, what? What was happening? What was happening? And who's going from well, where? Well, it's it's nice out. You're outdoors more. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. probably more willing to walk places right. rather than ride your bike or drive right. a car or get a ride. You're probably more willing to walk because it's nice. Yeah, yeah. And it uh, this this case upsets me just because of because uh, because they were right in the middle of their own towns, and the towns were so small. Well, and I think it makes it more terrifying that we live in a town of 6,000 people. Yeah. And on a border. On a border. And, you know, we think we're kind of immune to this kind of stuff because we know everyone and everyone knows everyone. And, and it's safe. And it's safe. But then you read stories of, of, of these two women or these two girls at the time and, you know, Leanna Warner and almost every other person that we've talked about, they've come from small towns. They really have. It's so scary. I think that you can be, I think that in some ways it might be easier to be invisible in a large town where you, where you, you aren't making eye contact with everybody that you run into right. or you're, I think it might be easier to be invisible in some ways, but, uh, um, yeah, this, it just seems like this would be a much harder way to, person to steal or yeah. to attack and and they're both gone and never seen or heard from again. And um, they ha- they have families. They'd be sixty years old and and a whole life has been lost. And where are they? Is there there's were some some distinct things about about Nancy a scar on her shoulder and yeah. between her shoulder and her elbow. And um, yeah, so maybe some but maybe it maybe it. Um, Maybe somebody's seen or heard that because that scar wouldn't have gone away as you got older. Right. It wouldn't. It would be very visible and yeah. and um, yeah, and so that's the story of Nancy Kirkpatrick and Robin Petonato. Thank you. We ask that you do not reach out to the families or post names of possible suspects on social media. Missing person photos, along with information and articles used for these cases, can be found on our website at gone-podcast.com. Thank you.